The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello and welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone, joined this week by James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Uh, good morning. Morning, Ian. Hiya. Morning. Uh, yeah, uh, so um, not quite the outcome we were hoping for. Essentially, our regular thrashing at Anfield. Um, although, if, if if there's a good 4-0, I think that might have been it, but we'll get into that. Um one of the highlights certainly was uh, Mikel Arteta's uh, fracas with uh, Jurgen Klopp after Mane's horror elbow, <laughs> by the way. Uh, we'll get into that as well. Uh, so we thought we'd ask, what are the moments of uh, managerial passion did it remind you of? Um, Amy, you said it wasn't necessarily about managers, yours. No, I just, you know, you, we were talking before about... Um sort of scraps and disagreements and so on with opposition. And I always remember speaking to Frank McClintock, the legendary captain of the 1971 double winning side, about um, one of the things that he felt brought that team together, which was an almighty ruckus in, uh, in Rome when they played against Lazio in the European Cup. And... Uh, as he, he remembers the story, I'll just, I'll just, I won't use his accent, um, but I, I will use his words because he says it very well. But he talked about it was quite a feisty game and somebody had tried to snap George Armstrong in two. And Peter Story, for those of you who don't know about him, was the sort of hard man of the team, but a really like one of those quiet, dangerous hard men. And uh, he was very unforgiving afterwards and, and, what was customary at the time is that after a game in Europe, the two teams would have a meal together. Somebody thought this was a good idea. So there they were in some fancy eatery in Rome with all the Lazio players. And uh, Frank just remembers that Peter Story was growling at the Italian players all night, like sitting there, like stewing. And they kept saying, for Christ's sake, sit down. And he was growling. And even when he was on the pitch, he'd growl and go, at his opposition player. And... Um, I think Ray Kennedy went out for a breath of air and uh, their captain and a couple of supporters walked by and said something to him. Ray Kennedy, who wouldn't take any lip from anyone, gave some back and there was a fight. Then Peter Marinello went out and then he was getting thrown across a car by these supporters. And then Bob Wilson ran out and ran straight back in going, oh, there's a fight outside. So the rest of the team <laughs> then bundled out there and uh, there was a most almighty fisticuffs in the streets of Rome. Um, then the police turned up and pulled their guns out, at which point it stopped. <laughs> but the moral of the story was that, you know, as a team, and I suppose if we're trying to relate it in any way to Arteta's show of passion on the touchline, it was about standing up for each other and actually facing up and being together and not allowing one of your own to be intimidated or mistreated. And I think perhaps Arsenal in recent times have people have said, been a bit too nice like that, a bit too tepid, a bit too not standing up for each other sometimes. And uh, while there's this mixed feeling, some people saying, oh, Arteta's actions somehow, you know, were helpful and sprung Liverpool into into a reaction, like as if some way he was responsible. <laughs> I'm quite sure I buy, buy that. But I see what they're getting at. On the other hand, I think to see 
the you know the group which includes management staff uh, and players that world unity again but standing up for each other and not being prepared to see something they don't like go unchallenged is a good thing well we can have that argument in a minute uh, but uh, <laughs> oh, before right. we do james what about you yeah, well, I guess on the spirits of sort of managerial uh, fracas on the sideline, I, I would have to allude to that Arsene Wenger Jose Mourinho confrontation. Certainly, that was an iconic image, and I think years of frustration and antipathy between the two men kind of—I wouldn't say boiled over because it was still relatively tame, but it was very—it was written across both their faces, particularly Arsene. And I enjoyed the way he kind of towered over. Mourinho in that particular image. Uh, down on the touchline, I think it's Mourinho. Wenger has a little bit of a push on Mourinho. To be fair to him, stays on his feet. I was also going to talk about one that Arsene Wenger had with Martin Yoll as well, where I've got to be honest, I feared for Arsene a little bit, really, because um, Martin Yoll had the, the, the build of a, a, a boxer maybe gone to seed a little bit. and uh, But I don't, I don't particularly mind these things if I think they're... Um, worth something and I think they're, some, they're, they're for something that actually was uh, was worthwhile but we'll talk about that in a second because I think that might have been the major reason that Liverpool went up to a different level. Um, it is Black Friday this weekend. Uh, we're giving you an offer you can't refuse. It's an athletic subscription for £1 a month for 12 months. You only have it until Sunday, the 28th of November. So do it now by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. It's one of them nights, like I say, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and this team, this team will go again Monday, head up, chest out, and um, we'll learn from tonight. So Liverpool 4, Arsenal nil. As I said, our, our sort of fairly uh, our almost annual thrashing at, at, at Anfield. Uh, at Anfield, good feelings gone, really. Um, Arteta summed up the game quite well. We showed for 45 minutes we could compete with them. We crashed for 15 to 20 minutes. We threw the game away. And that is learning uh, from today. Is that a fair point, James? Pretty much. We started very well. 30 minutes in, we had the Anfield crowd quiet. Then we had the incident. Things ramped up a bit. And then we sort of gave it away because they pressed us hard and uh, and we couldn't cope. Uh, I think that's broadly right. I mean, I would say that our goalkeeper had to make a couple of pretty good saves before they broke the deadlock. And I think kind of incident or no incident, personally, I think that the tide was turning in that direction. But, but I do think that period after half-time was particularly disastrous. And um, I don't know quite why I did this to myself, but I went back and watched the game yesterday. And it is sort of incredible how from about the 48th minute to the 52nd or 3rd, Arsenal basically don't get a thing right, um, particularly Sabi Lukonga, who, having looked OK in the first half, was just absolutely shell-shocked in that second. And Liverpool... They're such a dangerous team because they're so good at identifying weakness or vulnerability and pouncing on it in a very literal sense. You know, they hunt in packs and they seek out those members of the team who might be vulnerable. And they did that to us uh, pretty devastatingly after half time. I have to say, I was encouraged by what I saw in the first 30 minutes. And I do think this may have been a case of a young team coming up against a team at the very height of their powers. And I think that might be why the scoreline 
was quite so heavy and it was quite such a, a significant defeat. I think we we did live with them for that first half hour, but we couldn't sustain it. And maybe that's something that will come in time. I think when you look at the age profile of this particular 11, if they're still turning out results like this in one year, two year, three years, then I think we've got a really big problem. But I'm not too surprised that they struggled to live with Liverpool because they are an exceptional team. They are an exceptional team. I mean, Amy, Lee Dixon did a tweet uh, yesterday morning, actually. You get games like that with a young, talented, inexperienced side from time to time. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know. I mean, that sort of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that was a really wise comment. And uh, Lee will remember getting beaten 4-0 at Anfield, which didn't happen very often in his era. But they Weren't went they up there having just winning... won the league and were yeah. absolutely <laughs> tanked, I think. So uh, it was a slightly different uh, flavour of 4-0. Um, I think it's a. I think what James says is, is, is really, really spot on. And it would be a mistake to go overboard, which most people are not doing. I saw something, um, a post by uh, Mike from the Gooners pod, I think it was, who made an interesting point as well about, you know, the, the games that are going the way of the heavy defeats. If you, Brentford really was the anomaly and there were, there were specialist circumstances around that. I suspect if Arsenal went and played Brentford away in the last month or six weeks rather than the situation around the first day of the season. I'm not too bought into that, oh, they've just got promoted in their new stadium and they've got a crowd back. I think just generally speaking, I would expect Arsenal to be more competitive than they were able to be on that opening day. But the other other defeats have been against teams that pro- probably a team like Arsenal are expecting not to get results from. And if, as Mike was pointing out, Arsenal can basically continue to get roughly nine points out of 12 against the bottom 15 sides, if you like. So taking away the the very top handful. That still brings you up to, you know, a, a projected something like 65 points of the season or whatever it might be, uh, maybe a bit, bit more or less, which probably gets you in spitting distance of, you know, certainly top six and Possibly a bit better, depending on how things go. Everyone seems to be beating everyone else apart from those top teams at the moment. So, Expecting Arsenal to go and get results from Anfield, for example, at the state they're in is just not massively realistic. And I think what everybody wanted was a performance. And I was intrigued in a way by, I think, that first half hour, Arsenal were managing it quite well and, and taking taking the sting out of the out of the game and it was quiet and that was partly Arsenal's doing because they didn't allow themselves to get overwhelmed within the first 10 minutes but one thing maybe you think is a next step apart from trying to sustain that being able to control and not get overwhelmed is being a little bit braver and a little bit more um, convincing on the moments of of trying to get forward or, or counter-attack I felt like there were a few moments where I don't know say Saka got in a position where you thought maybe he can jockey past his man and, and make something happen. And there was almost that slight hesitation for which I don't, you know, apportion any blame or anything like that. But you just feel there was that sense of like a slight nervousness and like a lack of real liberty about let's go for it. And again, that maybe comes with a bit more experience, but perhaps you get caught if you're a young player in between how do you balance 
being secure, you know, being diligent, taking care of the worries that you've got from, you know, as a team defending and also being courageous enough to really go for it when you, when you, when you get up the other end of the pitch. Well, sure. I mean, I'd agree with that entire analysis, Amy, but surely then how you balance that, James, is your experienced players giving a bit more. We'll talk more about Thomas Partey in the second half, but, you know, Lacquer and Ober, they, they weren't really in the game. Partly it's because we didn't have the ball very much, but they they didn't come back and contribute as much as they perhaps should. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult as a centre-forward playing in a team where, as you say, that we didn't have a lot of possession. We weren't progressing the ball particularly well. Liverpool really uh, targeted sort of the centre of the pitch for Arsenal. You know, they had particularly Thomas Partey. They had about three men around him. And that forced Arsenal to go out via the fullbacks. I think Nuno Tavares had more touches than any other Arsenal player, which shows you who Liverpool were happy to have the ball and who they weren't happy to have the ball. And I do think we struggled to to get Lacazette and Aubameyang into the game. I mean, Lacazette's been quite effective in this kind of half-striker role, dropping in and you know winning free kicks, keeping the ball moving. But I think he, in Fabinho, he just came up against a player who was on another level to him, to be frank. And uh, he, he could not win that duel. And not only could he not win it, he couldn't buy the free kicks he normally does because Fabinho was so cute, so physical, so strong. Um, and that was a problem for Arsenal because he's been an important way of us sort of getting out and getting up the pitch. But I know what Amy means as well about the killer instinct from the young players. I mean, in the first half, it was mainly Saka, as I recall, who kind of got into these opportunities where he was kind of breaking in on the opposition penalty box. And and I suppose it's there, without wishing to sort of hammer the point too much, that you see the difference between Saka and Smith-Rowe, Arsenal's wide men, and Mane and Salah, who you know are, c- are coming on for a decade ahead in their development uh, and in the way they play. And I think um, you just could see that. You know, I think the the finishing touch, that uh, decisive moment. I know Smith Rowe's been doing it for Arsenal of late, but those guys are so clinical, and that's where we want our two to get to as well. Because you know, we can debate Aubameyang, we can debate Lacazette. What we do know is, in two years' time, they almost certainly won't be here. Um, so I think we need to think about the young players that we've got and how how this experience can be a learning point, a development point for them moving forward. James, do you think that that will inform the way Arsenal try and scout the next centre-forward? In other words, what kind of player is going to help and be you know, the most effective pivot to help Saka and Smith-Rowe take those next steps in their development? Yeah, I think it should. I think it really should. And and also Martin Odegaard should be part of that conversation. I mean, he's a player Arsenal have made substantial investment in. At the moment, he's not in the team. I'm sure his time will come again. But when you're thinking about the type of striker you want, I think you want some, someone who complements all of those players. And, you know, I maintain that Lacazette and Aubameyang are playing together partly because one of them isn't quite right to do the job that Arteta requires. And we do need a kind of hybrid of some of their best qualities. And I also think that when Arsenal sign a striker, and I imagine it will be next summer, I do wonder if they might be a little bit more flexible with the age profile than they were, say, 
the some are just gone. Um, you know, if it was someone who, because in, in Balogun, Martinelli, we have some really exciting you know, attacking players. Lacazette and Aubameyang are kind of at the other end of the spectrum in terms of age. I think what we need is someone who's maybe, rather than under 23, maybe in that kind of 24, 25 sweet spot where he could come in and make an immediate impact over the next three to four years. I, I feel like that's where Arsenal are really missing something. And, you know, when you look at this team, I think goals are at a premium um, and that's a problem that needs to be solved uh, this season but it's a problem that can also be addressed in the transfer market. I mean what you're talking about someone who compliments Saka and Smith-Rowe and like you say Erdegaard when you see Liverpool and the way they play I mean they are whatever five six years on they also by the way have a manager who's 15 years on from our manager in terms of experience and uh, trophies and all the rest of it. Um th- in the end, we're just coming up against a team who are miles, miles better than us on uh, on uh, Saturday, and and I and that's why I don't think we're seeing too much negativity uh, on social media. You know that they they're an outstanding football team. They were European champions. They were league champions. They have two of the best forwards in the world playing for them. They have an outstanding midfield and one of the best defenders in the world. They're um, they're an excellent side. So that being the case, and I'm assuming you agree with that, that being the case, what we don't want to do, surely, is to get Anfield going. I mean, you said it yourself, Amy. They were quiet. They were quiet for the first 20 minutes. We quietened that that crowd down. And I think what happened with that when Mane challenged Tommy and and Arteta kicked off and I mean tell me you weren't a little bit surprised by the by the the reaction I just thought really for that that doesn't seem that much and it just got the crowd fired up this is a this is a crowd by the way Anfield that Barcelona couldn't cope with with Lionel Messi right playing for them one of one of the best teams to ever turn up there and they got crushed 4-0 by Liverpool with that crowd on their side surely Mikel Arteta has to think about that and think you know what maybe I went a little bit over the top I think he might have been slightly embarrassed by it should he have been Amy um I don't know uh I also think it's quite interesting the way that the narrative has evolved that sort of Mikel Arteta started it and like brought it on himself. I think Klopp was ready for it. I think when you actually look at the at the images, it almost looks to me like Arteta goes to sort of remonstrate with a fourth official or or whatever in the way that happens a million times in a million matches. And it was Klopp who got himself involved, who reacted to I don't think to Arteta having a go at Klopp, but to Arteta just you know challenging the the, the decision. Um, and the action. And I think it looked to me like Klopp was ready to go. And maybe that was his own frustration and emotion that, you know, Liverpool had just lost a game against West Ham. They weren't playing that well. They're usually 5-0 up against Arsenal by about 20, 25 minutes anyway. And it was only 0-0 and it was a bit quiet. And he, he does have that kind of a capacity to influence everybody's adrenaline levels. And I think that it was something that he wanted as much as anything else. So... I'm not convinced it's so straightforward as to say, oh, Arteta made a mistake. He was, you know, responsible for Liverpool upping their game. I don't really buy that fully, to be honest. I'm just putting it out there. I know that Jack Wilshire was interviewed on TV and he said he quite liked to see the manager kick off a bit. It got the players going. What do you think, James? 
Uh, I think that there may be something in what you're saying because I, I think that Klopp is such a experienced operator and using the crowd is part of his shtick. You know, it's part of what he does. I think he's a, he when he arrived at Liverpool, he was very determined to make Anfield this fortress again and he's absolutely succeeded in that. Uh, and I and I do think the crowd were, yeah, a little bit subdued by what Becalmed. they had seen. Yeah. And I think, I I think that he actually is the one who kind of lit the touch paper, if you will, in, in terms of that confrontation. The way he came back at Arteta, I think, provoked Arteta to react in the way that he did. And I think Klopp may well have been thinking, let's breathe some life into this stadium. Um, but I don't want to be a hypocrite because in the moment I absolutely loved seeing that reaction from Arteta and I as a supporter I like a bit of that in my manager I like a bit of fight um, so I don't wish to kind of admonish him for standing up for his player in that situation and I also think ultimately the, the first goal that Arsenal concede it is the consequence of a set piece organisation you know that hasn't really got a direct influence on the crowd or or on that incident so uh, when i when i watched the game again my my overriding thought was that Mikel Arteta will be hugely frustrated by the the goals that Arsenal did end up conceding particularly the first two because yes they gave away some chances and yes the goalkeeper had to make saves prior to that but if you go to Anfield that's going to happen you know you're going to need your goalkeeper to play well i think the nature of those first two goals which basically decided the game I think he'll have more regrets about those than he will about the touchline incident. All right, let's have a um, let's have a little talk around the positives from the game. Is the positives that that we weren't four 0 down at halftime, Amy? Is that is that one of the main positives? Really? I mean, they're going to learn from it as well, aren't they? These boys. I think the learning is the more important bit. Tony Adams always used to say, "You learn more from your defeats than you did from your victories." There's a Young players, uh, a lot of whom are experiencing this kind of pressure, um, these kind of questions. You know, they haven't got bags of of it under their belt. So, you know, let's see if it's a similar team, as James mentioned earlier, in a year's time or whatever, is the same thing happening? Or can they find a bit more resilience, a bit more organisation, a bit more concentration to sustain... Uh, staying in the game longer. Obviously, it's progress <laughs> to get to whatever half an hour nil nil. Um, but in the end, still the, the, the scoreline was very very chastening, and it, I'm sure it was a very. Uh, I thought it was a very difficult one for the players to go home and deal with, but you know the response now is key, and if. Um, in the next two or three games, which aren't going to be easy either, they can get back on track again and put that one behind them rather than letting it kind of affect their their confidence. Try and uh, you know keep up in the rough positions. I think I think being if there's one bright shot, it's you lose four nil and you're still fifth in the table. That's helpful because while the table doesn't mean much at the moment, I'm sure that the players are feeling very different about life to be close to those European positions than, you know, 
proper mid-table or worse. I think it's harder to get yourself fully motivated and to be a bit more resilient to deal with when things are not quite going your way. When you're up near, you know, you're further near where you want to be and it keeps you just having that maybe fraction more determination at times to to stay around there, which is where they feel they need to be. Yeah, I mean, let's be fair. It could be worse. We could be May United, couldn't we, at the moment? I mean, there's there's that. But James, um, um, and positives for you. Um, one thing I was going to ask, by the way, I know we are talking about positives, but do you think that Kieran should have started instead of Nuno Tavares? Well, with hindsight, certainly. <laughs> um, you know, Nuno made a big mistake on the day. Even if I thought, to be honest, until that point, he acquitted himself relatively well. I, I kind of wonder if the mistake he made was born at, partly out of the fearlessness with which he plays you know if you look at the instant again he goes into the channel with Trent and Alexander-Arnold shoulders him off the ball dribbles away from him starts a counter-attack and then basically just doesn't look before playing a pass and um, you know I think that's inexperienced but I also think there is still a lot to like about him and I can understand why Arteta went with the man in form, the man in possession, the man who's played a big part in yeah. these recent results. But yeah, He didn't deserve to be dropped, did he? He didn't That's deserve to be dropped, but I think, I do wonder if, and not so much in Arteta's minds, but maybe amongst the minds of supporters, Kieran Tierney's decline has been a little bit exaggerated. I mean, he was very good for Scotland in their two international games, helped them some very big results. I think he's still a really important player. Don't forget, when he signed a new contract in the summer, we were all... Cockahoop, you know, we're all delighted about that. I think he is uh, uh, one of, should be one of the first names on the team sheet. And that's not a slight to Nuno Tavares. I just think, you know, we, we may have slightly forgotten what Tierney can bring to the party. And I, I suspect he'll feel fairly confident of getting that place back um, ahead of the Newcastle game on Saturday. And one more question before we uh, go into a little break. Newcastle, then United, then Everton, these next fixtures. Amy, what would be a good haul of points from those? Nine. <laughs> That'd be great. I thought I was meant right? to be Mr. Positive. Well, you uh, you I didn't mean, ask me what I thought we'd get. Yeah, no, that's true. I... <laughs> that's true. I mean, these are big games, though, aren't they? Because if we can now step forward again and go, actually, you know what? We got beaten by one of the best teams in Europe. Let that go. Um, I mean, isn't it? I can't remember who said it that the best players have a goldfish memory, essentially. They make a mistake and they move on straight away. Um, you know, they've got three games that they could win. United, look, I mean, Newcastle are not a very good team. United are poor. Whoever's managing them, someone with United DNA, no doubt. And uh, and then Everton. These are winnable games. Well, I mean, neither, we of them are, neither of them are anywhere near as good as Liverpool. Let's put it that way. No, no. I think they're more of a significant um, measure for Arsenal's progress and Arsenal's season than the Liverpool game. I do really feel that that top three are kind of in a mini league of their own. And yeah. that, you know, United, for example, are much more on a level with us in terms of competing directly for places. I mean, I think from those three games, the reality is that six points would actually be a pretty decent return. You know, you could you could win one and draw two and get to say you went through it unbeaten, but you'd end up with five points. I think six would be decent and seven would be very good. Um, but, you know, there's a couple of tricky looking away trips in there. I mean, it's kind of Arsenal's luck that we don't get to face Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United. I'm sure that some life will be breathed into them, whether by Michael Carrick or anybody else. So I think that'll be more taxing than it might have been had Ole still been at the wheel. 
Yeah, thanks Watford. Thanks a lot. Uh, <laughs> I this know is... those two those two extra Watford goals in stoppage <laughs> time really ruined a lot of a lot of my fun. And it could have been more than that as well. It was very, very entertaining. If you haven't seen that, you should definitely watch it. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at the time. Okay, Ian Stone, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence here on Handbrake Off. A uh, couple of players we wanted to talk about, uh, it, particularly from the Anfield game. Or, uh, well, one certainly was um, Thomas Partey, 50 million quid cash up front hasn't quite produced there are moments when you go oh yeah there's the player that was playing for Atletico Madrid is it partly a case of him not getting a rocket from um from Diego Simeone is it as simple as that or is he not feeling happy in London or has it been an injury is it, is it a combination of all those things I don't know I, I'd be surprised if it was the not getting a rocket from Simeone being you know the factor um you'd think that a player of that caliber has enough sort of self-motivation and awareness that it's not dependent on an external gear change. Honestly, Amy, sorry, mm-hmm. before you carry on, I just, because I watched I watched the Tottenham game yesterday and there's no doubt that he tore into them at half-time, Conte, and they were, they did run harder in the second half. The managers do make a difference and maybe, and, and, and Diego Simeone was certainly one of those guys who you wouldn't want to upset I mean, you know, I'm just putting it out there. I, I, I honestly think that's a slightly disrespectful concept to a player like Party to say that you, you know, you're not running hard enough unless your manager is bollocking you. And also, you know, we're not in the room, we're not in the dressing room. We don't know no. how much Simeone uh, particularly fired up Partey or, you know, had an effect on that way or had a go at him. We have no clue. So, what is the reason? I don't know. I mean, he. I think when you when you consider, you know, any transfer, particularly the the heavy financial transfers, come with that extra degree of expectancy, and probably a lesser feeling that you can you can give a bit of latitude if it's not quite you know working. But the you know fifty mil for parte, which was a, a very important amount of money that. You know, Arsenal had to go and ask specifically for that extra money to get this guy, and the seventy-two million for Pepe as a kind of club record transfer—they're both extremely pricey assets. And it's partly the the nature of the game. We're dealing with human beings, and we don't ever know that anything's going to work. But you, you give it—you know—you do as much homework as possible to give yourself the best chance. And neither of them have you, you have bought that kind of instant injection of world class that people hope for when they spend that kind of money. I don't know why. Um, and I imagine that it's probably the sort of thing that is quite frustrating and a, a, a question that the manager is working really hard to try and unlock, try and solve, because it's better for a manager to 
get those players to click and be and feel in the circumstances to be their best and be massively effective, they're not. So maybe in this Liverpool game, you have to also put it down to the fact that, as James mentioned, Liverpool were very smart in the way that they had a lot of men in that midfield area, kind of with a bit of extra attention probably on Thomas Partey than others. So his capacity to influence was reduced partly by that circumstance. He's up against a phenomenal team um, and maybe he's not got a lot of experience around him and immediate spaces around him to help him in that. But it did look fairly ineffective. He did, and and I, yeah, I, and it is slightly disappointing, James. Um, do you think it's also the fact that he's got a lot of young kids around him, and um, he's having to really carry the team? And Liverpool obviously sussed that out and went right. If we stop Thomas Partey in those passing lanes through from the back to the front, that will really affect Arsenal because he's their senior player in the middle of the field. I think that is a factor, and I think if you were setting up against Arsenal, you know, you'd probably be able to think. Right, well, they'll go out from the goalkeeper, maybe via the centre-halves, but they'll want to get it into party so he can turn and pass the ball forward. You know that, you can plan for it. And I think one of the unspoken issues, in a way, is the fact that he hasn't got his midfield partner with him. And I know that every Arsenal fan, to different degrees, is kind of fatigued of Graham Jacker. <laughs> you but, do bring this up on a regular basis. But, well, I think it's, I think it's absolutely critical to yeah. analysis of Thomas Partey that it's a very different thing playing next to Ainsley Maitland-Niles or Sabi Lukonga than a 28, 29-year-old guy who knows his job and is, for the most part, fairly consistent. I mean, I do think that the Partey-Shaka partnership is very good and having it there, you know, for example... It, if if you've marked him one, then you can't mark the other. And both are really capable of playing those forward passes. I just think that's something that you have to factor into the analysis. I think another thing is fitness. You know, people said, oh, well, he wasn't great at Anfield, but he's not, he's spin out, hasn't he? And it's like, at some point, you know, you know, availability is one of the top abilities and he's he has been unavailable a lot. And it's it's a real problem for him. You know, I, I sympathise, but it feels like every time he plays, he's coming back from an injury or he's rusty. And that's an issue. They need desperately to try and get a handle on that. But with a player who's 28, I don't know how likely that is. I still think he's, in terms of talent, Arsenal's number one central midfield player, probably yeah. by some distance. But I do think there might be a personality thing as well. I mean, it is interesting. If you talk to people about leaders within the Arsenal squad, Partey is sort of conspicuous often by his omission. You know, yes. everybody, everybody will say, oh, Ober and Laka, you know, they're big personalities at the, in the dressing room and they get us going. Or people might say, you know, Gabrielle, Ramsdale, these are young guys who are kind of, you know, taking up the leadership mantle. And I have to be completely honest and say, in the conversations I've had, nobody's mentioned 28-year-old, £40 million not, signing Thomas Partey. Now, not once. But there are different types of personalities and there are different types of leadership. So I'm not trying to 
kill him for that. But I do think that because of the amount of money we spent on him, we look to him. And because I think of our associations and our memories of figures like Patrick Vieira and Cesc Fabregas in the Arsenal midfield, who were kind of Captain Fantastic, all action guys to, who bailed us out on countless occasions. We look to him for that. And that's another reason that I think the partner might be really important for him. You know, whether it's Shaka or somebody else, I think he might need that. He might require that. He might be one of those people who just functions better in with that sort of relationship alongside him. So, yeah, I, I do think it's an interesting one. And I wonder if, I don't know if Arsenal would say they regret doing the Thomas Partey deal, but I wonder if they would do it again. I, I'd be very surprised if Arsenal went out, let's say, in the next summer transfer window or the one after that and spent that kind of money on a player who was that kind of age. I, I, I don't see that happening for a few years at least. Amy? I was just thinking, I thought it was fascinating, James, and... You know, this expectancy of having personality is really, really interesting. But someone like, I mean, he's, from what I can tell, he's just a very sweet, likeable, softly spoken guy. Absolutely, yeah. You know, his personality is not massively demonstrative. And, you know, sport is full of different kinds of people and not all of them are, you know, massively eccentric and outgoing and mouthy and... Uh, you know, macho uh, by any means. I mean, when you think about someone like, say, Conte, uh, he's a, a guy who's, a, you know, famously incredibly shy and sweet and Loveliest guy in the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people don't look to him to uh, transmit that kind of gestures of, of big personality or words of big personality. His, you know, his, what he provides just comes from the supreme quality of his game. And again, it's about the people around you. If, if those qualities are in evidence in other parts of the team, you don't need it from everybody. So I agree that I think it would help our impressions of Partey if he was more demonstrative or he spoke more or he um, just had more kind of like obvious like bits of sort of, I don't know, getting people going, trying to get the crowd going. Those sorts of things that, that fans enjoy and I think other players value in the ones who do it. But it's not him. No, I, I don't want to go on about this too much, but one more thing. Do you think that we're sort of on this endless quest to replace Patrick Vieira and we're, we're never going to find another player like Patrick Vieira because there won't ever be another player like Patrick Vieira and and it's just you know as James once sang if I hadn't seen such riches I could live with being poor <laughs> not you uh, James but the other James I was going to say I don't remember that, I? Um, <laughs> that must have been a good podcast I yeah I think that is a factor I, th I think what Amy says is right about you know you do need different personality types in a dressing room and there is something really to be said for having a cool head in there someone who's sort of unflappable um and who you know maybe doesn't uh get too emotionally involved in games um but i do think that that maybe we are projecting some of that onto parte and maybe some of that does come from the likes of Vieira, the likes of fabregas that i mentioned and maybe it means that we 
we judge him as something that ultimately he he probably isn't. Um, I'd say if I was to compare him to any player, it wouldn't be Vieira. It would probably be Gilberto, his partner. Yeah. So if you can imagine, hypothetically speaking, transferring um, uh, like a sort of footballer off, you know, put Gilberto into the current team in Partey's place and put Partey into the Invincibles team in Gilberto's place, you can see how you could probably be having similar conversations. You know, Gilberto was very understated, underrated, um, did a fantastically important job for the team without being showy, without being outgoing. And probably in today's team, I imagine Gilberto would be more underappreciated because maybe people would be wanting him to do more than is his um, his real capabilities or different things. don't know. Yeah, I mean, Gilberto, Gilberto is one of those guys that we only really appreciated him when he wasn't in the team. We suddenly went, how comes we're not in control of this game like we were every other? Oh, Gilberto's not playing. Um, yeah, we won't get into Nicola Pepe as well because he's not really playing at the moment. But uh, uh, the big money signing's not quite working out for Arsenal at the moment. Hopefully that will change. Um, uh, just a line on the Arsenal uh, women's team. Um, they still sit top of the Women's Super League. Got back to winning ways this weekend with the 2-0 win over Manchester United. Viv Miedema has scored against all 14 teams she's faced. What a forward she is. I like reading uh, Ian Wright's tweets about Viv Miedema because it, just the way he talks about her being an elite striker and there's something, there's, I like something in the appreciation of, uh, of the way she plays. Let's have a song to finish. Uh, Amy, do you have a song for us? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I was reminded of this by my mate Duncan, and uh, it's a song I absolutely loved in my youth, The Primitives, Crash. <laughs> wow. Okay, then. Well, can I, can I jump in at this point and say I found a song. I was looking for a song called Reality Check. <laughs> and there is one by a guy called Sway Lee. I don't know this person, but it's done very well on YouTube. Have and you apparently listened to the- it? Or have you just I, picked I have it on the strength only of its title? I, purely on the strength of its title. I, are uh, you are you really sure that it's something to inflict on all our listeners? You know, you've got well, to give it a listen, Stoney. You can't I just don't put imagine, it out there without a listen. You, you know what? I get that. I don't imagine that it'll get chosen by uh, by our producer. <laughs> but I, I, I like the title anyway, because I do feel that uh, it was a little reality check. It's not knocking Perhaps. the primitives off, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go with the primitives, although James may have something uh, better um, also that he's listened to uh, as well. James, what have you got? Well, I have actually listened to mine, I, I can't reveal. <laughs> I went for um, a David Bowie's song called Because You're Young, um, which is not about losing 4-0 at Anfield, but it is about heartbreak of another fashion. Um, so, yeah, Because You're Young. All right, well, it's either the Primitives or David Bowie, I think. But uh, I will check out Sway Lee and we'll, uh, maybe we'll use it again when we come up against Chelsea or Man City for the Just return Just report matches. back next week with that kind of, What was that uh, show they used to have, Hit or Miss, when people used to analyse new records? Right. Well, it Remember might that? have been. 
Okay, well, if that's what it was, I'll report back next week and let you know about Sway Lee. I might not even be pronouncing it right. It's S-W-A-E. Uh, to be honest, the swell, uh, the uh, the spelling actually offends me in a number of ways. Um, anyway, that's it for Handbrake Off. Uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully after a victory. Thanks to James. Thanks to Amy. Thanks to Abby, our producer. See you soon. Mm-hmm.